Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 133. In this episode, we're talking about Mary Magdalene and Jesus films with Dr. Siobhan Jolly. Dr. Siobhan Jolly recently completed her PhD at the University of Manchester with a thesis entitled Reimaging the Magdalene liberative reception criticism and the counter-reformation magdalene team members on the episode from the two cities include brandon hurlbert and myself dr john anthony dunn so brandon it was great to chat with dr jolly about mary magdalene uh, as as she has been sort of received in art and christian tradition comparing that with the gospels and of course kind of looking to see what a number of jesus films and and even tv shows uh, like the chosen uh, how they portray mary magdalene and how in some ways they're drawing upon this tradition in some ways they're subverting it or critiquing it what were some of your thoughts about our conversation with dr jolly yeah differently than kind of the other episodes in this series. This episode with uh, Siobhan just focuses on one character, and Siobhan just knows basically, I think, everything about this character in her work. I've known her for a few years, and I've heard many uh, conversations about uh, Mary Magdalene, so she's my uh, go-to expert on the character. So it's just really fun to hear someone so passionate about Mary Magdalene talk about how this character in particular features in a number of Bible films. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Siobhan Jolly. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Jolly. Thanks for having me. So we're really excited to talk about the representation of Mary Magdalene in Jesus films. And as we get going, could you tell us a little bit about your research and your interests uh, with Mary Magdalene? Yeah, so my thesis that I've been working on is concerned principally with Mary Magdalene in art. Uh, So fine art, Italian counter-reformation art, but my interests more broadly extend to popular culture, including music and TV and film. Uh, which is how I find myself here chatting to you guys today. Um, And I'm mostly concerned with the reception of Mary Magdalene, so how the biblical figure has been understood and expressed in different cultures. Could you tell us a little bit about what we do know about Mary Magdalene uh, from from the Gospels, let's say, what we can maybe say about um, this figure as she's represented? Because, of course, uh, a lot of what we know is mediated to us through art, the the various kind of things that have been said about her by certain popes um, that have sort of tainted her her kind of legacy. Could you tell us a little bit about what we do know about this figure? Yeah, I can tell you very quickly because there's surprisingly little that we've got to go on in terms of actual gospel content. She crops up always in the passion narratives. Luke introduces her a little bit earlier, but in the other gospels, there's a sort of oh yeah, and the women are there, and Mary Magdalene's one of them. And that kind of just, we're expected to sort of backfill and imagine that that she's been there all along. And we just get very little detail, really. So in Luke and in the long end of Mark, we get this extra detail that she's had seven demons cast out of her, but we don't get any information about how that happened, when that happened, what those seven demons might mean. She's usually listed at the head of a group of women, but we don't get any real sense of what the significance is. 
and we don't get the name Magdalene explained to us. So in terms of what the canonical Gospels tell us, basically nothing. That she was a woman who travelled with Jesus and was there at critical moments. And then, of course, in John in particular, she has this key moment at the resurrection, and that's her sort of starring role in them. The rest of, of the Magdalene story is backfilled from other accounts and from myth and from the way that as you said that we develop it in other reception traditions so the probably the most common conception is that she's a sex worker and that comes about in lots of ways Gregory the Great um, gets the blame for that although actually the way in which that's accepted tells us that probably he's just saying what other people are thinking and the reason that he brings this about is in his homily on Luke, he's trying to offer a, a synthesised reading of the Gospels. And so he concludes that the woman in Luke 7, the anointing woman who comes to Simon's house, has to be Mary Magdalene. And that that makes more sense because that explains what these seven demons could be because that woman is described as sinful. And he says that that's also Mary of Bethany. And people accept that pretty readily. And he gets a bit of a, a bad press for that. I don't think he's deliberately setting about to do some sort of character assassination on Mary Magdalene in doing that. He's trying to read these little fragments of stories of the women in the Gospels in a way that that makes sense. And actually, that's what Jesus films do as well. So in a way, he's a, he's a nice kind of precursor to the type of stuff that we're talking about today. But that sticks. And so if you ask random people um, what they know about Mary Magdalene, which probably most people don't, but I obviously do, and... Um, prostitute sex worker is the type of language that that immediately comes up and there's no real basis for that either so on that point about what gregory does as kind of actually being perhaps a bit clever because he is kind of conflating characters um this is actually kind of it seems to me a bit of a, a trend uh that a lot of female characters get conflated with each other in kind of the reception of of the gospels mary just being uh one of perhaps a, a few others that just kind of get folded in on each other uh, and collapse but the tradition about mary does kind of evolve in some interesting ways especially like in the gospel of mary uh, i'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that gospel and kind of what that reflects in terms of uh, the, the tradition about Mary Magdalene? Yeah, so the Gospel of Mary is presumed to be Mary Magdalene, but actually the Mary in the extra canonical Gospels is actually a much more complicated figure. Um, and there's a really nice article by Anna Quickler which goes through that and sort of picks up on some of these different themes. So we can assume her to be Mary Magdalene quite often when we're reading these extra stories. And the prime place for doing that would be something like the Gospel of Philip. Um, where because they, they exchange knowledge with a kiss that obviously fits in with all of our kind of retrojecting romanticism as well as the the kind of practical spread of knowledge but sometimes it's not clear whether the Mary of, of these texts is Mary Magdalene is another kind of hybridized Mary or is even Mary the mother and so they they offer us a bit of a sense of how Mary Magdalene is being thought about but not necessarily giving us much that, that's factual. And we know that this is changing the way that people are thinking about it because we see it picked up in other texts. So things like um, the Golden Legend, where we've got all these different traditions being brought together. And in the Golden Legend, it happens quite uncritically. So he is happy to say, well, she's the sister of Lazarus and of Mary, and 
brings in all these different traditions and isn't worried about the fact that that doesn't seem to necessarily go with what's going on in the gospels and it's it's useful for us i think because it shows us that this idea of thinking with mary magdalene isn't a modern situation that she has been a figure who has been played with since the earliest times and the ambiguity of that name mary helps with that and people didn't have such an issue with that in the past so it seems that the lack of concrete details and the fact that there are multiple Marys and they kind of just blur together allows this kind of uh, allows room for creative uh, expressions and creative receptions. And I think, I, I mean, one of my favorites personally is the award-winning 2006 film, Da Vinci Code, uh, starring uh, Tom Hanks and somebody else. Um, don't remember. Is that meaningful? Now, I, obviously those kind of films are a bit silly, but I was wondering either if you had any thoughts on that film or if you wanted to just talk about certain films that you might actually enjoy that you think do not as terrible of a job using the reception history of Mary. So who, who saw this coming? But in defense of Dan Brown and also that film, they actually do a really good job of playing with the reception history because the reason that stuff like that is so popular is because it, it plucks at just enough threads of plausibility. And even though what's woven together is wild, there are just enough little traceable elements that, that make it work. Um, I mean, it doesn't fundamentally, but it's enough to hold the reader in that sort of state of suspended disbelief to go, or maybe, and that could be plausible. And actually that is, you know, peak Mary Magdalene myth in some ways. Um, I was looking for a painting last week. And it's a painting which shows Mary Magdalene's pregnant. And don't Google Mary Magdalene pregnant if you're trying to find something specific, because the, the corners of the internet that that takes you to is shows that what Dan Brown is doing with that is picking up on something that people want to believe, want to think about, want to explore. And so there's so much out there. And so actually, although it doesn't do much in the way of kind of useful constructions of Mary Magdalene, it's prime example of the way in which the reception is used and, and abused. It's tapping into something that's there. Now, I know in the US, it was in certain uh, pockets of people, there was a lot of pushback with uh, Da Vinci Code and people boycotted and and things like that. I don't know how widespread that was in the US, but it was in the circles I grew up in. Was any of that here in the UK? I don't know, is the, is the honest answer. Not in my circles. I... <laughs> I think the Da Vinci Code in cinemas might have passed me by at the time, sadly. It seems like that that uh, fervor that kind of led to Da Vinci Code and that has continued, as you said, you can find all kinds of crazy stuff on the internet. And it seems like it's continued to boil, boil over in terms of a kind of plausible historical development that uh, may have been believed in the past. Like, for example, with the, the gospel of Jesus's wife uh, forgery from a few years ago and how for... Uh, at least a little bit, there was a, a huge resurgence of this idea that some Christians in the past, you know, I, I'm not sure what it was purportedly dated to the fourth century or something, but that some Christians uh, believed that Jesus had a wife. Could you tell us a little bit about that storyline and uh, how that has kind of affected kind of uh, Mary Magdalene reception ever since? Yeah, it's a, a kind of great example of this. Is it, is it the X-Files? 
the slogan was I want to believe. And this is our kind of I want to believe moment because the fact that something that actually with, with the hindsight and with the work that was done on it, um, including, I mean, the, the excellent stuff that Ariel Sabar has done to bring all those threads together is a fascinating sort of example of people almost suspending their belief and the fact that he was able to convince someone like Karen King for a while who is one of the greatest scholars in this area and I feel sad actually that that's become her kind of association now uh, because the work that she's done has been so compelling and so profound in in other areas shows this desire that people have to want to believe it and this construction of this forgery which we now know was based on an online translation because it copied an error and something as small as that is what unpicks the the thread people were were so keen to believe it and I think the reason that people like that type of line of argument is because it it humanizes Jesus in a way that often there's a still a degree of separation, however much theologically people are able to resonate with this idea of, of fully human, fully divine. There's still a, a step away from ordinary humanity. And so the idea that he was someone who you know, had a, a family is something that people enjoy thinking about, not out of the great conspiracy theory desire, but actually just because of, of the humanising element of it. And yes, there, there are extremes at end of that scale but ultimately people like the idea that Jesus was a human amongst us as well mm-hmm. and so the fact that that really took off I think it is testament to the number of people who however serious their academic pursuits are and however um, much they have concerns about these other things when confronted with we now know to be fake but a little bit more evidence we're able to get on board with that type of reasoning Yep. I highly recommend that book by Ariel Sabar Veritas uh, for, for listeners. Uh, additionally, we did uh, put out an episode, episode number 34 with Christian Ascalon, who is one of the kind of low-key investigators behind this, who kind of helped to uncover that it was a forgery. Super fascinating uh, episode, if anybody is interested. But given this notion that you're talking about just now, how Jesus having a wife, if Mary Magdalene was that figure, for example, how that would normalize him, humanize him, et cetera. And there's one film in particular that really addresses this issue of how Jesus' longing for a family really kind of humanizes him. And that's done quite well in Martin Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ. I wonder if you could say more about how Mary Magdalene is represented in that film in particular. So, yeah, she in that film becomes almost a prop for his humanization. I think Scorsese says, doesn't he, that this is not a film that's meant to present the Gospels, it's meant to present the struggle. And so straight away, it's set up as something that focuses on that humanising element. Where I think the portrayal of Mary Magdalene is less optimal in that is the way in which it kind of leans so heavily and so uncritically into this idea of her as a sex worker. And it doesn't seem to give as much space to the exploration of her kind of character and struggle as it does to Jesus. And that that's common, I think, I can give you probably one or two exceptions where Mary Magdalene is just a prop. They are Jesus films first and foremost. And actually her character development is always going to be secondary to whatever portrayal we want to put forward of Jesus. And so although um, she 
is presented as part of his struggle. Her character in some ways is quite flat, I think, in terms of as, as a Magda. What's interesting with that film, I think, is that if she wasn't Mary Magdalene, if she was just a different woman, then it would it wouldn't feel that way because she is an interesting character. But watching it through Magdalene eyes, I suppose, what you see is a, a sort of rehash of some of these old tropes that are deployed to good effect in the film as a cinema going audience member, but that don't engage so critically with the Magdalene history and reception. You mentioned earlier that you know a lot of these films are reusing uh, tropes that are previously established in art, uh, and um, obviously we're going to just be talking about art, and it'd be helpful if listeners could Google. But if you could do your best to describe some of these uh, artistic tropes that some of these later films are are reusing, I think that'd be really uh, helpful and interesting to our listeners. So probably the three key recognisable features of Mary Magdalene art are going to be her long hair, her pot of ointment of some description, and usually the fact that she is dressed in red, although that is complicated. And so the hair tradition um, comes partly from what we might expect about ideas about hair and promiscuity, and so the idea that she's wearing loose hair in public in the company of um, male strangers that comes from that gospel conflation so like Mary of Bethany the anointed woman in Luke 7 as well that she's got her hair loose enough to be able to dry his feet and so on so that's where that is first picked up but in Magdalene myth more broadly we also get other types of hairy Mary so in the golden legend she spends time in the wilderness and her clothes fall away and her hair grows long to cover her so you get some particularly early medieval Italian Mary Magdalene's where she's cloaked in her hair um, to an almost comedic degree, sort of Chewbacca levels of, of Hairy Mary. And so we, we've got this broad history of, of Magdalene hair, which I could go on about for a long time and I won't. But in the films, we often see this carefully coiffured hair that's alluring in some way. One of the artists that uses that in a similar way would be someone like Titian. So in lots of his penitent Magdalene's, she is naked or topless with her long hair covering her, but quite often it parts conveniently around her breasts or it forms a sort of trajectory pointing to them. And so at the same time, he's playing with this idea of hair as something that encourages modesty, but also that draws attention to the thing that is supposed to be concealing. And so all of those ideas, as well as our own kind of cultural ideas about hair and, and the way in which women present themselves, crop up in these films and so her hair becomes part of her her physical allure in lots of these. The ointment jar doesn't really get picked up in cinema anywhere near as much whereas in in art that's her kind of go-to motif. I think the reason it doesn't happen in cinema in the same way is because obviously you've got the more dynamic capabilities to tell the story and so in the static artworks the ointment jar is a nod to her role of the resurrection, perhaps her role as the anointed woman. Whereas that narrative doesn't need to be displayed in the same way in films because you've got a little bit more space to flexibly tell that story. And then the red is an interesting situation because quite often we associate that with sinfulness. So we get the scarlet woman idea, but actually particularly in European art, 
this red cloak that she's wearing is a sign of of the ultimate love and so quite often we see john the beloved disciple also wearing red for the same reason and so it's not meant to present her as this ultimate sexual sinner but as the ultimate love and so that when we see her at the foot of the cross in this red cloak it's not just reminding us of her past or anything like that but it's reminding us of how much she loves jesus and so it might indicate her past especially in conjunction with the loose hair as a sort of reminder of how far she'd fallen versus how close she's come but it's not doing that scarlet woman role in its own right in the same way and so we see that translated sometimes into film another trope we get quite often is a sort of orientalist portrayal of mary magdalene so she's exoticized and glamorized and that kind of serves the similar purpose to the things that we see with the red and the the nudity and the hair in the static art but it's really interesting to to look at the way in which those little snippets that we recognize from in these static and classic artworks are born out in these films DeMille's King of Kings uh, has to be, I think, a, a great example of that orientalizing um, that you're describing, you know, the way it opens with that really ornate uh, decor of her home, presumably. Uh, could you say a, a bit about, about that representation? Yeah, so that is one of a kind of series of, of silent Jesus films that bears out some of the, these tropes exactly. I think the fact that they're silent means that sometimes the temptation to lean into the visual extremes happens a little bit more thoroughly. And so for DeMille, we get this very glamorous, I suppose, Magdalene in, in, her, in her own way, who is, he's clearly wanting to make sure that the viewers understand that this is someone who is sexually appealing, who is desirable, who is able to um, hold all the, these strands of myth and story that, that he wants to bring into it. And so the whole film, I think, is, is quite over the top with it, but I enjoy it. So things like the exorcism of those demons and the kind of dramatic portrayal of them as the seven sins really kind of feels like it's it's over the top, I suppose, to, to maybe to contemporaries. But it, it's a really clear example of this tradition in film. And although in the kind of big Jesus epics later on, that softens down a little bit, I still think that is a frame of reference for so many of those directors in thinking about how we're communicating who the Magdalene is without sidetracking the story from the Jesus narrative. I always thought it was so strange to open with Mary Magdalene and to kind of fabricate this whole scenario about these relationships that she has, uh, and then um, to really kind of let go of her after the exorcism scene, you know, that you just described. It's almost like she's, I mean, if she's in the foundational opening scene, and then just like, not kind of left after that. I mean, do you have thoughts about what's going on there? Well, I mean, we could take up the same issue with the Gospel of John, right? She has her big moment. She has the, the critical resurrection moment. She has the first encounter, first witness, goes and tells the other disciples, and that's it. No further mention. And so actually what, what those films are doing is exactly what happens in the Gospels, that she serves her crucial plot point, she has her, her moment, and then after that it doesn't matter. We're back to the main focus of it. And so what's really common, I think, across yes in king of kings but also across the, those other silent films is the portrayal of her as this kind of tamed femme fatale 
And so she loses her, her interest almost once that's happened. So we see a very confident Mary Magdalene, actually, particularly in the, in the first phases of these films, which isn't carried through into the Jesus epics, where we see a much more complex and often subdued figure. But you know, these silent Mary Magdalene's are confident, they are tamed, I suppose, by the encounter with Jesus, and then they become less narratively interesting. Going back to the representation of Mary Magdalene's exorcism with the seven deadly sins being cast out of her and all of that, over the course of uh, Jesus from history, you get a lot more representation of, of Mary according to this kind of traditional idea of her as a former sex worker, as somebody who is reformed through uh, her encounter with Jesus. And it occurs a lot. And, and that idea of her, um, you know, demon possession in particular, uh, I think of the kind of the feral Mary the, uh, of um, the miracle maker, you know, and there's just a number of interesting representations of that. But what is so fascinating is the, the film, Mary Magdalene and the really profound uh, moment in which Jesus has been brought to Mary Magdalene's uh, home and he declares there are no demons here. Can you tell us a little bit about the context of that of that scene and and of course this this film and, and kind of what's going on there in terms of the reception of Mary Magdalene or the rehabilitation of Mary Magdalene? Yeah, I think that's one of my favorite scenes. Um, particularly in that film. And Brandon's heard me say this before. I like that film, but it's a film that I would say I recommend if you like Mary Magdalene, not necessarily if you like cinema or pace or plot or any of those other things that we might go for. But that for me is a really profound moment. And so we've had a little bit of an introduction to the character of Mary Magdalene so far. We've seen her in quite a domestic setting. So she's fishing, she's functioning as a sort of pseudo midwife for the community. And her dad and her brothers are keen for her to be married off. And um, we've seen her go to synagogue and grumble about not being able to sit with men and not being able to pray in the same way. And she doesn't want to marry the man that has been selected for her. She's very resistant to it. And so in the night she's woken up and they take her and try and perform an exorcism on her. And what the film does really well is show exorcism as something that is robust and is actually scary and it's not a very passive occurrence as might be the case when we read the gospels because it's something that's fairly commonplace that we come a little bit desensitized to it and so jesus casts out a demon and everyone goes on about their day and what mary magdalene the film does really nicely is show what a, a physical and mental trauma that type of experience could have been for people and so she they perform the exorcism ritual, it doesn't work, and so Jesus is brought to her. And this is the first time we properly encounter Jesus in the film. We encounter him from Mary's perspective, so we get this nice close-up on her face, and we can hear him talking in the background, asking to be brought into her. And so he tells her that there's no demon, and she says, I wish there was a demon. And the reason that I really like that is because I think it speaks to the relatability of her as a character and it taps into the kind of mental health narrative that we sometimes get attached to it in a nice way that it would be easier for Mary Magdalene in this film if there was a demon that if the things that she was feeling and the challenges that she was facing socially could be solved by Jesus a miracle worker casting out this demon from her because actually what we get with her is that 
she's countercultural. She doesn't fit into the box that has been set out for her. And that's the issue. And so to say, I wish there was a demon, having seen that ecstasy and having seen what that would mean in a very visceral way, I think gives us a really nice insight into this presentation of her as a, a troubled character. And I think this is, I mean, you just mentioned the Miracle Maker. We're talking about the same one, creepy animated, scary one. Um, I was terrified of the Miracle Maker when I was a kid. I really didn't like the stop motion. Oh but- my gosh. Hold on. But we, uh, in another episode, we talked about this and I said, I never heard of it. And when I saw it, I thought that is so creepy. And Matt, like, he didn't really get offended, but low key, I think deep down he was, I think I offended him. So I'm sorry, Matt. But I also think it's creepy. So I'm glad that someone else thinks it's a creepy film. Anyways, continue. Like it's, it's a staple of Catholic education in the UK as well. And so there's a whole generation of people who have witnessed this. And lots of people enjoy it. You know, Matt too, apparently. And it is Not good, me. but it's creepy. <laughs> um, but anyway, in that, so for those who've not seen it slash suffered it, we get this great narration from the perspective of a character called Tamar, who is Jairus's daughter. And she says that um, Mary Magdalene's demons are mental illness. And so that makes sense in the context of something like The Miracle Maker, because it draws heavily on Luke. And when Mary Magdalene's introduced in Luke, she's introduced as part of this group of women who have been cured of um evil spirits and infirmities. So Luke does, without really giving us much explanation, set up this juxtaposition between physical and I think more accurate to say spiritual illness rather than mental illness in the way that we conceive of it now. But we see this kind of theme picking up and actually in the Mary Magdalene film, they recognise that idea and go, it would be nice if it was a demon, but it's not that she has got her own kind of baggage and issues that she's working through and I think what that does really nicely I just want to give a plug for Megan Henning's work on this as well because she's talked a lot about the way in which typical Jesus scholarship has talked about things like healing or exorcisms and actually has created she she kind of borrows from Phyllis Tribble to say these new texts of terror for people with disabilities and so I think it's nice to have a film like Mary Magdalene that avoids that, that avoids sort of oversimplifying the complexities of, of human experience as well. And so it's a, it's a really nice scene and it's a really good insight into the tone of the film as well, I think. Isn't there something with the Judas character and Mary Magdalene that like they have this, they have this like interesting kind of, they have lots of dialogues, right? Between the Judas character and the, but I don't remember. Yeah, so Judas and Mary Magdalene are in some ways a kind of unlikely pairing, but in this film, we do get a little bit of a parallelism between them. I think the the more obvious pairing is with Peter, but um, there is this kind of conflict of people having these issues, I suppose. And the Judas character is troubled he has lost his family he's feeling isolated and so we see the kind of escalation I suppose almost radicalization of Judas happening alongside the narrative in this film and I think we get a bit of a tension between Mary Magdalene who is able to resolve the issues that she's experiencing when we first meet her by sort of channeling into a, a deeper purpose and a spiritual purpose and a spiritual connection 
Whereas I guess that's juxtaposed a little bit with Judas, whose troubles continue and who continues to struggle because he doesn't channel it in, in the same direction. So I guess there's a, there's a little bit of a, a theology going on with that because in that earlier scene when she's saying she wishes there was a demon, she's talking about thinking about whether or not she can hear the voice of God, whether what she's hearing is is something else. And Jesus kind of enables her to, to go, okay, so this is a calling rather than a, a curse. And Judas, although we don't see much of it because this is really a film from female perspectives, we get these little hints that actually he's not able to deal with it in the same way, which is interesting. So the pairing with Judas also picks up in, um, you've probably not seen Mary Magdalene, the original. So it's from 1914. Um, and it's a sort of, starts off with the lives of Mary Magdalene and Judas and so they're both living these hedonistic selfish reckless lives and then Mary hears Jesus preach and she suddenly comes to know Christ's love and she abandons her work um, we don't get it directly said that she's a sex worker but it's very heavily implied and she becomes one of his most ardent followers and so actually I wonder whether or not I don't know whether they've used that as, as a kind of reference point for that pairing but it is interesting it doesn't really come through in the gospels in the same way and it's a it's a shame actually when i watched the mary magdalene film for the first time i didn't realize that you know it's joaquin phoenix as jesus but only like the week before that i had watched the joker which also has joaquin phoenix um who plays someone not at all like Jesus. And so it's very weird to watch this Jesus film and be like, and, and, and it's, you know, they're, they're filmed pretty close together. So he actually has a, a lot of the same kind of weird ticks, Jesus as the Joker. So it, it was very weird experience watching the film, but I did thoroughly enjoy the movie. The, the portrayal of Jesus, the way Joaquin Phoenix does it is really interesting because it's really different to the big Jesus epics. And I think Helen Bond said that she didn't really get it after that she gave an interview after she'd first seen it and she said oh she wasn't really sure about the portrayal of Jesus and it is very different and I think it's this female perspective that we get that how do you make a film where one of at least the central characters is the incarnate son of God not the main character I think it, it takes a very special kind of portrayal to be able to to subdue that and to make sure that we're getting Mary's perspective on it. And so I think he does it really well, this kind of introspective intensity. And they they want to push back at, at this idea of the sexual or romantic relationship. So they've got this spiritual connection, this, this friendly connection, which is maybe undercut by the fact that we're watching it and we know that they're a couple and that they were dating when they were filming it. But the way in which he, he presents Jesus as this kind of quiet, person who draws people to him rather than this bold preacher that we get in some of the the big 60s and 70s Jesus films I think is, is an interesting way of restabilizing that dynamic between Jesus and Mary Magdalene because it's very rarely reciprocal you know it's still very much a story of him in which she plays a, an interesting part Adele Reinhardt says that you know how do you add drama and sex into a story about a celibate son of God you give it a character like Mary Magdalene. And so we see that so often and it it gives that 
unequal dynamic whereas I think in the Mary Magdalene film there's a real sense of partnership and collaboration between the two and I think part of that is is Phoenix's portrayal and the way in which he brings you into it with that intensity. So obviously this film, this Mary Magdalene film uh, is imaginative, but it corrects some of the wrongs of history, perhaps, and how uh, Mary Magdalene as a character has developed. One other Jesus film TV show to mention that that uh, doesn't seem to, to have corrected much at all about, about Mary Magdalene's portrayal is uh, The Chosen, which is, of course, wildly successful in certain circles. And what I find so, so jarring, especially contrasting with, um, with this Mary Magdalene film, is not only is she a reformed sex worker, which carries the trope forward, uh, but it doubles down because she goes back to being a sex worker. She's a, she's a backslidden Christian, if you like, a kind of archetype for a, a backslidden Christian, which is, which is a novum, I think, in Mary Magdalene tradition. You can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it strikes me as a, a unique rendition of her, of her portrayal, perhaps because of the medium of a TV show. So you can sort of have her dip back into this because you got more time to sort of develop her character. Um, but it's really prominent, right? It's right there in the very first episode, her exorcism. She's even called Lilith, which is a not so subtle hint to both the sexual and the demonic oppression. Uh, can you tell us uh, a bit more about what's going on in The Chosen? Yeah, so the, the Chosen is interesting because I think you're absolutely right when you say that this isn't something that we really get in the cinematic portrayals of Mary Magdalene, but it's absolutely something that we get in the cultural usage of Mary Magdalene, because very much so she is the cautionary tale. So often she's held in this kind of binary with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and that's picked up in lots of interesting ways in film as well. But Mary, the mother, is this kind of unattainable perfection, you know, so you should strive to be like her which may be impossible, but you should keep striving because otherwise you might become Mary Magdalene. And because she is still this cautionary tale, so although she's the archetype of redemption, the fact that we're talking constantly about her redemption rather than her witness, for example, constantly brings us back to this notion of sin. So actually what the chosen do is just unpick that a little bit and, and spell it out in a little bit of a more obvious way of that redemption is, is not a, a fixed and permanent state for her. It's not, we don't get the nice straightforward narrative that we get in those silent films where she's she's tamed, she's cured or whatever else and off she goes and now she's a saint, which actually is what we get in the Gospels, for example. What we get in the cultural use of her as this cautionary tale is the warning that we could become like she was before. And so by making the character in The Chosen as she was before, it really kind of lays that on quite thickly of the fact that it requires this ongoing repentance and an ongoing redemption. And the connection with Lilith is really interesting. Um, the cynic in me says that Lilith appears because Lilith's having a, a cultural moment. Um, she's kind of broken out of the sort of feminist reception in Midrash and she's cropping up in different TV shows. She's in um, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. She's in Lucifer. So Lilith sort of having a bit of a, a moment culturally but the demonic connection is really interesting because obviously in the the story of Lilith Lilith does not want to be cured of her demons she wants to embrace it and so the this is a strange kind of pairing but actually it makes lots of sense to as a way of cementing this lapsed Magdalene figure that when she's at 
the, I, I guess, when she's fully possessed, she goes by Lilith because she has no interest in this redemption. And so it's a nice, again, slightly heavy-handed way of making it really clear to the audience if we're going to relate to Mary Magdalene, then we've got to be doing the relate. And of course, this is what we see across the history of her. So the rise of the cult of Mary Magdalene in Europe comes about partly because the the space that's kind of been filmed by the space that's been filled by the rehabituation of the, the cult of the Virgin Mary into the church. And she becomes this cautionary figure. So in Venice, for example, where they've got an issue with the spread of sexually transmitted diseases, Mary Magdalene suddenly becomes this important cultural figure for reminding people not to be like that. Don't be like a Mary Magdalene. Be the reformed Mary Magdalene. Don't be as she was before. And even down to institutions like Magdalene Laundries, for example. So we have this perpetuation of the idea that women who are Magdalene's could as easily be the sinful Magdalene as they could be the witness. And so that there's this real need to reiterate that repentance in order to sustain that redemption. As a final question, are, you know, are there any other portrayals of Mary Magdalene either in film or television that, that you really appreciate that you want to you leave our viewers with? Maybe I'll, I'm reluctant to plug because like with the Mary Magdalene film, it really depends on what you want to get out of these portrayals. Um, but there's a really um, interesting one that was... Who put me onto this? I feel like this. it was Adele Reinhardt who put me onto this as well, um, which was originally released as a made-for-TV film, which, again, gives you a sense of potential quality and so on. Um, but Deborah Messing of Will & Grace fame plays Mary Magdalene. So it was originally released in Italy, um, but then it got a, a US TV play, um, just called Jesus, um, in two parts. And there's a really kind of resonant sense with that Mary Magdalene film in that they're absolutely clear that the connection between Mary Magdalene and Jesus is spiritual so they really push back at that sexualized sinner idea and we get this kind of important relationship we see the important status of her and I don't know that it's the best film in the world but it's really interesting as, as a Magdalene portrayal and it's not as well known and so the other things that it does really nicely, for example, is it sets up the conversation with Mary, the mother, really well. And so they're very much kind of in a supportive relationship with one another, that they are two women who, as in the um, Davis film, support each other, who care for Jesus, who understand him in a way that other people don't, for whatever reason, with Mary Magdalene, obviously the maternal relationship. And so that comes out really nicely in Jesus, this TV movie that I'm talking about and then we also have I think maybe one of the only really clear representations of Mary Magdalene who in this tv series goes after the resurrection tells the disciples and they believe her and we don't we don't get the sort of drama that we get in other films or you know the tension that Davis gives us the the kind of spoiler alert big standoff with Peter because they just believe her and it's actually quite nice it's a bit hallmark version of, of the story but it's nice to just see a version of events where people say right we believe you your witness is important and so i would recommend watching that 
Well, Dr. Jolly, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for, for sharing all of your insights about Mary Magdalene and art and tradition and film. Thanks for having me. Thank you.